Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Resistance Discs podcast. This is our second episode. I am Scott Withers, and I am joined with Jeff Corns after what was a pretty adventurous weekend in Las Vegas. Yeah, absolutely exciting, packed, full uh, weekend to start the season off, and, you know, we couldn't ask for much more. I had a blast. I know that um, there's so much pressure a little extra pressure, I would say, that goes into the first tournament of the year, getting to see everyone. We talked in the car um, kind of to and from the course, and then, of course, we had a two-day drive down from Oregon to Las Vegas. There's a little added pressure in this tournament, just because it is the first one of the year. You're trying to see what people worked on in the off season. You're trying to see how your game shapes up compared to everyone else. And I think for your resistance team, we had a pretty positive weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was stoked with uh, how our team played their uh, rounds on the course this weekend. We had both you and Adam pulling out top 10 finishes at tied for seventh. Uh, so, I mean, top 10s at Disc Golf Pro Tour Elite Series events are really good showings these days. You have to average some pretty insanely good golf, honestly, to be in those spots. So, Congratulations to both of you guys on a you know very successful weekend. Yeah, thanks. I think we both averaged just around 10.45 or maybe a point under it for the weekend. Um, let's talk about conditions. Let's talk about the tournament. I personally thought that the tournament ran incredibly smooth for the number of people that are going off on three courses. I thought that the Disc Golf Pro Tour and the tournament directors did an incredible job of having the property ready. You didn't hear any complaints from players at all about like, oh, this bunker's not roped, or oh, this out of bounds is stupid, or whatever. I felt like the courses played exactly the way they wanted them to play. And overall, they're still not my favorite set of courses just because of the style, but that property was 100% ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great course to start the season off because it presents well on camera for both like spectating and on the uh, post-production coverage. And like you said, I mean, everything was smooth. TDs had everything together. They solved a lot of like previous issues that had popped up like in previous years, whether it comes from like the parking situation with like just a massive load of people being on the property at once. Um, just all sorts of other small things that weren't quite dialed in, maybe from practice rounds, too many players on one course at one time. They kind of shift some things around. So there was like a scheduled practice um, routine or schedule like you had to practice a certain course on a day, depending on what pool you were playing on. So they solved a lot of their issues and it was a well-run event. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I hats off to the whole tournament staff there, um, to the Disc Golf Pro Tour. There is a lot of work that's got to go into getting three courses ready for us to show up and play not just us as like pro tour players but also then adding two more courses worth of age protected divisions and amateur divisions just to make sure that everything goes smooth we were never backed up tee time wise we were rarely backed up on the course things the flow is great and yeah huge hats off to the people that put the work in behind the scenes for that so let's get into some results. Um, I will list off our top 10 here, and then you can kind of uh, throw out some opinions. It shouldn't be a spoiler at this point. 
Drew Gibson and Gannon Burr absolutely went to war in that last round. And Drew comes out on top at the end after four playoff holes, uh, shooting 13 under for the day. Gannon shoots 10 under for the day, which is still a really good round. Uh, Calvin ends up in third. Luke Humphreys, a little bit of a surprise for tied for fourth. Looks really good, but just went on fire that last day to shoot 13 also. Kevin Jones ends up tied for fourth with Luke. Tristan Tanner with another good showing in Las Vegas ends up in sixth. Adam Hammes, myself, and Ricky Wysocki tie for seventh. And then Thomas Gilbert and Luke Sampson are in the tied for tenth. So a couple people with some, I would say, unexpectedly good showings for the week. Um, And then a couple names that you expect to be at the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the top players in the world, like Drew Gibson, Calvin Heimberg, Kevin Jones, yourself, Adam Hamas, Ricky Wysocki in that top 10. But like you said, you had some players that definitely like played way above their rating. I mean, Luke Humphreys is a uh, 1,013 rated player. He played 36 points above his rating over the week, averaging 1049 rated golf to take a top 10 or a top five finish. And, you know, that's a new uh, that's a problem. It might be one of his career best finishes, if not his best career finish at an elite series event. So congratulations to him. And, you know, a lot of these other players, if you wanted to take have a top 10 finish at the Las Vegas Challenge this weekend, you needed to add for average over 1040 rated golf in MPO. So if that doesn't speak to the level of competition, I, I really don't know what does. There's not very many people who are even 1040 rated in the world. So you're with yeah, the best of the best up there. But that's what it's going to be, and that's what moving forward you're going to look at. Um, some other notable names, Nico ties for 12th. Ezra, after his really good showing last year, ties for 12th. Chris Dickerson ties for 12th, so there's some power names kind of in there, and Colton Montgomery in with them. Uh, I got to play with Garrett Gerthy a couple rounds, always fun. Garrett is the man. Uh, he ended up in 16th. Team Discrest Chandler Fry in 17th. Anthony Brella and Eagle McMahon tied for 21st. Uh, James Conrad, 23rd. Kyle Klein tied for 24th. And then it was really cool to see Seppo back over in the U.S. for a tournament. He ended up tied for 26th. Those are some of the notables um, in terms of the top 25. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, you get this year to past years, and some people, I had some people messaging me saying, are people just like, are the courses playing easier? You know, why are these scores so low? Like, what's what's it like out there condition-wise? And there was calm scoring conditions all weekend. But I think that this is the kind of golf we're going to see. We're going to see a lot more tighter races this year. We're not going to see as many blowouts. Um, and you're going to see a, a large pack of people, like, up at the top. So it's I think this tournament really showed us it's going to be an exciting packed year of action on the DGPT. Yeah, you better bring it. If you're off a little bit, you're going to be fighting that cut line for tournaments that there is a cut in. And the ones that there's not, you're going to be fighting that cash line, no matter how good you are. Um, We see it with some of the big name players being outside the top 20 here. I got to play with Anthony a couple rounds. Obviously, his last round didn't quite go the way he was hoping, but he played really well in round two on the end of a course. Um, I overall could not be happier about how my groups played out our first round um was really really fun with nate perkins and uh luke who ended up killing it for the week and then zachariah johnson and then um it just kind of from there kept getting better and better i had a lot of fun a lot of 
cool guys to play with, getting to play with Adam and Garrett and then Nathan Queen in round three was a highlight. Unfortunately, Nathan had to pull out with injury halfway through that round, which he fought it and he wanted to keep going, but you could tell it just wasn't quite right and he needed to step aside. And then in the final round, getting to play with Ricky and Garrett and Anthony, it's not often that... And I guess this speaks to what these courses are, but it's not often that I am 50 feet behind everyone else in the group when it comes to throwing par fours. And I think it's fair to say for a couple of rounds this weekend, I was 50 feet behind the rest of the group on par fours on every hole. Yeah, but, you know, cleaning it up on the putting green is definitely a critical thing. You were up there in uh, like some of the lowest OB percentage. Like I thought this was crazy. We were peeking at U-Disc stats, me and Paul Johnson at T-Box Disc Golf. We were on the way down to Memorial, and we started peeking at some of the stats. And we noticed that Drew Gibson had 11 OB strokes on the – or 11 OB on the uh, entire weekend. Wow. Which is insane because you had – I think you had you had five or six. I can't remember exactly which one, but, you know, Drew give, Drew gave up six strokes to you and just out-of-bound strokes – and yeah. still put up the weekend that he did and, you know, finish seven strokes ahead of you. Like, if you can keep things clean on the putting green, get up and down, it's a very critical thing out at the Wild Horse golf-like course. And, you know, speaks to all parts of the game being critical in these tournaments. It also just speaks to probably a little different strategy from Drew to myself for this tournament. Just being realistic, he's going after every single hole on this property. And that's how you end up OB 11 times. Not to say I'm not playing aggressive on the, this property, but there were some times like on hole 18 yesterday where if there's a lot of death behind the basket and stuff and I'm just not feeling it, I don't mind putting it in the ground um, and taking my par and moving on. And that was kind of my strategy at the start of the week. I don't feel like on these courses I can get into a firefight with some of the top distance guys. So for me, I need to play smart. I need to keep it clean. I need to make my putts inside the circle. And it's just a little different style of golf than the guys that throw 600 feet are probably playing out here, but you can see the results. Obviously I am pumped about a seventh place finish and drew is pumped about a win. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would just kind of assume that some of that with the OB stuff is how incredibly aggressive that drew and Gannon and Calvin and Kevin and all those other guys at the top are playing these courses. Yeah, absolutely. Every single strategy, you know, has potential to work, but it's all about execution at the end of the tournament. Um, go ahead and I'm going to put you on the spot here. We didn't necessarily talk about this, but why don't you give me two or three players that you were surprised with their finish in a good way. And then we can talk real quickly about how incredible Kale's cashing streak was that came to an end this weekend. Uh, so I'll give my first player that, um, and I want to use like surprised as it sounds like we don't expect this person to ever perform at this level but um like we'll just call it like rough showings or good showings i'm gonna start off with just luke Humphreys. um i think last year he took somewhere in the range of 70th to 90th place at vegas the only reason i know it's in that range is I actually have luke on my fantasy disc golf team and i was trying to figure out who i wanted to sub in for one of my european players that were not going to be attending the event and i was like do I play Luke Humphreys? Ah, uh, I don't know. He didn't have a great showing last year, but coming out and taking a top five finish at a DGPT event, like we said, top 10 finishes are legit. Top fives even more, uh, you know, 36 points above your rating. Fantastic showing. So I'm going to give him my first shout out of a tournament performance. Uh, 
And yeah, why don't you send us off with one? Yeah, I think, and I don't know if it's necessarily a huge surprise in terms of where this guy ended up because he has played really well before, but Tristan Tanner had a pretty down year last year um, by his expectations and everything. And to come out and essentially be at the top of the leaderboard the whole time, um, not necessarily in first place, but was in contention for this whole tournament, I thought said a lot. Um, it said a lot about the offseason work that he's put in. Adam went down and trained with him quite a bit and said he's been on top of his game. So um, we know that Tristan has all the physical tools in the world. He's got to stay healthy. And last year, it seems like maybe he wasn't quite in the um, the health that he needed to be to be competing at the top level, but he's played well here before. I guess it's not a huge surprise to see him in the top 10, but given the results from last year, knowing that he wasn't hundred percent healthy, it looks like he's got himself right. And watching him on coverage, man, form looked good. Putt looked clean, forehand looked good. Like it always does. And his backhand looked like it had some good timing to it. So um, maybe long-term for this season, a name to watch a little closer. Yeah, absolutely. I've always thought of Tristan as someone who has all the tools to, execute at the highest level level just needs a little bit of maturity on the course mentally stronger and also maybe a little bit of decision making but Tristan definitely showing he's got what it takes to compete this year and I'm happy to see it you know more good golfers playing at the top level is always fun to see yeah do you have one more like highlight that you'd like to hit on from a player not necessarily a highlight but like we kind of teased a second ago players that we were surprised to see at the position they were at in Kale's cashing streak. Kale's one I got to call out. It's tough to see him in. Uh, he finished tied 50th at the end of the tournament, missed the cut by one stroke, and ended his massive uh, consecutive cash streak at PDGA events. 307 consecutive cashing tournaments. And it's not like these are all little B and C tiers that he's just racking up cashing events at. Like these are legitimately big national tour, pro tour, major style events. November 16th, 2008 was the last time that Kale missed a cut. I hadn't even started. Wow. Play. I wasn't even a PDGA member at that point. And my PDGA numbers, 38464. I'm like almost 200,000 numbers under some members right now. That is, that's insane. I mean, the number of events that you play in that point in time, like he's, like I said, 307 events. That's insane. A lot of players, even at the top tour level today, haven't even played 307 career events from amateur to pro. And, you know, it. you hate to see it because it's such an incredible feat, but, you know, it moves on to another player now. There's a new leader in longest active cash streak with Nate Sexton, who snuck into the cut. I think he birdied like three of his last four holes of his third round to sneak in there and stay alive and battle one more day. Yeah, I came up to or Dion Arlen, who is at the course working for Statmando. If you haven't checked Statmando out, it is a super cool thing that they've got going on. Came up to our group when we had a couple holes to go in the fight or in round three and goes kale's gonna miss the cut nate just birdied his last four holes to get in by one 
And I was like, holy smokes, like these are legends, right? Nate's won this tournament before. Kale's streak obviously has spoken for itself. I, to put in a little perspective, because a lot of the listeners here in the Northwest are going to be a little more familiar with maybe like how many events I really play because it's all of them. I have only played 266 career events. And that is basically playing, I feel like, almost every weekend the last eight years. And then before that, playing 15 or 20 events a year. And that was starting in 2009. So 307 straight events is absolutely bonkers for a cashing streak. That means you can't get hurt. You can't, like, just have a bad day. You can't play a flex start one round C tier and just like a six person thing. Like you can't tell me that Kale hasn't played a couple one round events where he's like running a clinic and they play a little flex start after and he takes fourth place out of six players or something like he never did any of that stuff. He cashed in every single event since 2008. So a huge shout out to, I mean, a very top notch human being, not just disc golfer in Kale. Um, Incredible streak, man. It'll never be seen. I would doubt that it's ever seen again with someone getting to 307 career cashing events. So in a row, at least. Yeah. We talked about Nate Sexton taking over the active cash streak and at the Las Vegas challenge, he took his 260th consecutive cash. So Nate's 47 tournaments away from matching the streak. Yeah. And that's realistically three years probably. Yeah. You know, and like you said, anything can make that streak end, even if it's a DNF injury or something along that lines. You got to got to be ready. So, you, you know, crazy things can happen, too. Like if you were off, you know, maybe going into the final round and a tournament gets cut off short because of a weather issue. Like totally like unexpected factors can absolutely come into play. But so I'm not sure if you knew this number. But do you know what the all-time cash streak record is? Um, the, no longer active cash streak now, but the all-time no, record. I, I have no clue. I was just assuming it was Kale's. But I guess if we're going to look at non, not just MPO events, then I would guess that you're probably looking at someone that doesn't play. Like hardly any MPO plays either age-protected or female in smaller fields and just racks up like tons of little C-tiers. But I... I have no clue off the top of my head. The current PDGA all-time cash streak record, it is it ended in 2013, but it started in 1989. It's Ken Climo's 426 events. Again, That's absolutely crazy. bonkers. Like we said, starting in eight, 1989 all the way to 2013, the consistency over that period of time to, you know, never have an off tournament that puts you in the bottom 60% of the field. Uh, and, that, and that is exactly what I thought it was not. And that was an MPO player that, you know, had gr- was grinding it out. So let's switch to the FPO field for a minute. Um, man, there's some names that were at the top and a battle. Um, some people had switched sponsors, Katrina Allen being one of them. She came out on fire the first couple days and had built a huge lead and then it obviously got interesting kind of how it always does i'll just give some results real quick and then we'll get on um your take on it katrina allen holds off Paige pierce even though Paige got her by six in the final round um or never mind excuse me that was in round three i'm getting the the wrong round pulled up here 
Yeah, I hit the wrong round pulled up. Katrina and Paige went into round four tied. Um, and Kristen was one back going into that round. So it was set up for a complete showdown. And it looks like, I mean, both Kat and Paige played pretty well on the final day. We were watching it on live coverage. Paige took a chance trying to win it in regulation on the 18th hole and ended up throwing out of bounds. That, I'm not good at that hole, but it, it might be the best finishing hole that we play all season. It's, I think it's incredible. I think it's hard as heck, but it's obviously an opportunity. If Paige would have made her three there and walked off with a win, that would have been one of the best shots ever thrown in like the FPO field or best holes ever played just to walk off with the win. She does not pull it off. Katrina Allen takes first. Paige takes second. Kristen Tatar third. Haley King, real good showing the last couple of rounds to get into fourth. And Evelina Solonen ends up in fifth. Um, I mean, we watched quite a bit of it on coverage when we were at the Airbnb. So do you have any any takes on what you saw? Obviously, it's cool to see Kat feeling comfortable with her new plastic a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Coming out strong to start the season off with a brand new bag of discs. It's exciting to watch Katrina, you know, at the top of her game. Her putting is in the past been a weaker part of her game. Not that she's not a good putter, but when she isn't confident in her stroke, it definitely shows on the course and, you know, throughout the entire tournament, she looks solid, just hitting massive putts from all over the place, deep in circle one, all the way into circle two, you know, fantastic showing almost thousand rated average for the weekend and coming down to the wire closing it out. It's great golf to watch. And especially seeing the scores, this tight in FBO is, I think is very exciting. You know, there's a lot of times where one or two players in FPO kind of run away with it for the weekend. And we've got, you know, four players within eight strokes at the top of the field and coming down to the last hole for the win. Again, I think we're just in for exciting season. Yeah, both MPO and FPO sides. You were, I would be very surprised if you saw someone winning close to 10 events or something on the tour. Let's even say five. Maybe the FPO field... Katrina and Paige and Kristen might be able to share some wins and, you know, someone could end up having five or six elite series wins, but I, I don't know who it's coming from, uh, especially on the MPO side. Like you, there is too many really, really good players right now to expect anyone to pop off a six or seven or eight win season on the elite series. Um, Maybe it happens. Maybe Paul comes out super hot. Maybe Ricky gets, really pumped to have his trilogy discs back in his bag and just kills it. Maybe Eagles on top of his game or something and just goes through a crazy two month streak where he's untouchable. But I don't know if I've ever been a part of this game when there's been so much parody at the top and our game is filled with absolute superstars right now. And it's never been in a better place. Yeah. It's great to see, you know, the top three European players as well on the FPO side coming over and getting some chance to show what they're made of in the U.S. Kristen Tatar, Evelina Salonen, Hannah Bloomers had a rough weekend and missed the cut. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, household FPO names towards the top of the field, and there's also a lot of new players, like your 2021 Rookie of the Year, Ella Hansen, uh, Holland Handley, some of these players coming up into the mix. It's great to see as well. So divisions yeah. are looking stacked. Players are looking sharp. And I... You know, don't think there's going to be any weekends where 
you're going to say, oh, someone, it was just an off weekend for the field. This person kind of got lucky, played good at the right time. I think you have week after week where someone's hot, someone's ready to go, and someone's going to take down wins. And it might be for the first time. It might be a, you know, perennial uh, contender, but I'm excited. Like, I don't, it's hard to put it into words, but just like disc golf is back. The season is ready to go and everyone looks sharp yeah one one final note on fpo i think you saw two people that will be in contention every week start pretty slow and then climb their way back up the leaderboard and Haley king and missy gannon ones that um we kind of expect especially after the way missy ended the season last year to be at the top and they ended up there uh Haley climbed back up into fourth missy climbed back up into seventh both with a couple really good fourth rounds um, and hopefully they can take that confidence from the last couple rounds this weekend and turn it into something at Waco because it would be even more fun to have five or six people out there battling for that first place instead of two or three. But overall, thank you to the Las Vegas um, crew. Thank you to the Disc Golf Pro Tour. That event, for being what it is, ran as smooth as it possibly could. Uh, and we are on to Waco next weekend. So. And honestly, the next podcast we do will be right after Waco. So the timing of it works pretty well. I know Jeff is down in Phoenix right now for the memorial. Um, so he'll be able to give a little recap on that one as well. And his opinions, I came back home to Oregon for the week. Um, but let's switch topics. I know we had three we wanted to get to. Um, this one we could probably talk about forever. We're going to try to keep it to 10 or so minutes of info on it because we could go on forever. One of the most common questions I get on social media and you get as someone that owns a disc golf, um, man, well, not manufacturer, a disc golf company, so to say, a retailer, um, how do I get sponsored? That's for some players, all they seem to care about. For others, it's a goal that can prove that all the hard work they put in over the years has paid off. So, Jeff. How does a player get sponsored and why does it matter if they do? And when is a player better off not being sponsored? So we'll get into a lot of the intricacies and all the different things. And I think like, you know, some people might have just heard what you said. And they're like, why would anyone not want to be sponsored? And I think that mainly is going to come into play when we talk about like manufacturer sponsorships. Um, But I in all summary, and I think what this all boils down to, and it's something that I think a lot of people um, forget or just don't even realize, and I specifically mean this more with um, up-and-coming players, not your top touring pros that are household names. The key thing to remember in sponsorship is that every sponsorship is a business relationship. And what I mean by that is just because you're a good player on the course doesn't make you an easy decision to sponsor. You have to bring value to a company because they are investing in you. So you have to bring something to the table for them that makes them money. They are a business, whether it's a manufacturer, a retailer, a clothing company, um, a dye company, like whatever they're doing, you need to be able to, in some sort of measurable way, show an effect on their business that makes them money. Because if you don't, then, you know, you're just handing out a friendly, like, gift to somebody. And that's, at the end of the day, that's not sustainable. So, business relationship 
is the key point in sponsorship. And it just gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, I don't know if this conversation is going to necessarily go the direction that a lot of people that are listening may want to hear. Um, because certain people feel like, hey, I've played a long time. Like, everyone else has a sponsor. I should get a sponsor. My take on it is, unless it is a relationship that is beneficial to both parties, it's not worth it for either party. Like, if I were to go to Grip, I joined the Grip team this year, and say, hey, Grip, I want you to pay me $5,000 a month and this and that, and they're just going to look at me and be like, you're not worth that. Like, you're not going to generate us the profit to make it worth that. Sure, I've got a ton of career wins. I'm going to be on the Pro Tour for most of the year or the whole year or whatever. But you've got to be realistic in what you're what you're asking for. And to me, a large part of that is based on your social media game. We saw so many players apply for the resistance team this year. And this is just speaking from us as um, a small retail company that is essentially just getting started still, even though you know we're a couple years in at this point, you worked your butt off the last two years to really put resistance where it is which is in a pretty good spot right now but we had over 300 people apply to be on the resistance team and we have 12 like yeah <laughs> i mean and not only and not only that but we have 12 players at that core ambassador team level but we only had uh four spots to fill on our bottom level team and like you said, over 300, like somewhere between three and 400 applicants, we basically picked out the 1% of players that we thought were, had what it took to be sponsored by us. And, and you know, you've got not like we're trying to put ourselves on a high pedestal or like we're higher and mightier than other retailers by any means. But, you know, like I said, we needed to find something that was sustainable and we need to bring, we wanted to bring people in that we would want to keep around for year after year. You know, we don't want to be turning our team over every single year. We found people that, you know, brought a lot of great assets to the table. And at the end of the day, that was the decisions that got made. We had a lot of our friends that applied that we had to say, sorry, you just don't quite have what it takes. You know, there's things we're looking for. And when you have almost 400 people apply, you know, there's a lot of great candidates out there. Like I was talking to Paul Johnson, uh, who... You know, works for us at Resistance, but also uh, is the team manager over at Ledgestone, does a lot of stuff with them. They just recently had team applications, and they had over 800 applicants in, like, just a week. So, you know, everyone, there's a lot of people in the sport that want to be sponsored. But, you know, Ledgestone's not going to go sponsor 100 of those players. you got to stand out in some kind of way. Yeah, and standing out on the course is one thing. When we were looking over applications, we're looking for people that play a lot of tournaments because you need to be involved in the you know the disc golf scene and people that are active in their community, whether it's running events, whether it is doing lessons, whether it is giving back to kids and that kind of stuff. But unless you are a, I'm going to say, a pro player for an MPO player, you got to be over probably 1,000 or 1010 at this point. And have a lot of rounds for an FPO player, probably over 900 or a little even better than that. And then have a bunch of rounds played and stuff. You are essentially going to go off how you brand yourself and how much value you have to a company to be able to sell discs. 
And essentially the only ways to do that are one, be a tournament director and run a lot of events. So you're in the, like kind of in the spotlight in your local community or two, your social media game's got to kill it. And that means you need to be active on like message boards. You need to be active on Facebook sales groups. You need to be active on Instagram, which is a huge one. Um, having like a disc golf specific TikTok probably wouldn't hurt. There's ways to YouTube's do it. YouTube's another presence. Yeah, for sure. They're just, there's yeah. ways to do it. But if you want to step into a, a role where you are making a relationship beneficial for yourself and for a company, um, you've got to be ready to put in the work or you've got to be putting in the work beforehand to show them like, hey, I'm going to bring value to this team. Because if not, then kind of like, what's the point? Um, what's the point for the business end of it? And I know that's not what everyone wants to hear, but it's kind of the truth. Absolutely. And I, you kind of bre- like went over all the points and I just kind of want to emphasize these things because I listed these thing three things out as what I think are like the most important things that a sponsor is looking for um, when it comes to just looking at a player on a sheet of paper and active in the tournament scene. And like you, so that touches on both as one, as a player, if you're you know playing a lot of tournaments, you're representing on the course but also that means active in the tournament scene, you know, maybe you are running a lot of tournaments, you're a tournament director, uh, you know, maybe you're running weeklies or monthly events for your local club, um, or you're just a volunteer or someone who's helping push the tournament scene forward um, in some kind of way. So that's one. Another one, like you said, active on social media, super critical these days. Everyone out there is addicted to their phone. They're constantly looking at it. We're looking at Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, um, Facebook, all these different platforms. So people who are on there posting content, getting views, uh, super critical for sponsors these days because they want to see their brand out there. So having sponsored players, it's just another form of advertising for those sponsor or for those sponsors and businesses. And then finally, being active or well-known in your local club or organization So, you know, maybe you're out at work parties, you're just representing the community well, you know, people know you, you're liked, you aren't known as that guy in the community. Um, So I think those three things are like the things that we can just quickly look at on paper and say, does this person check these boxes? Yes. Okay. Let's, you know, interview this person. Let's talk to them a little bit more and move that relationship to the next level and get to know that player. But that's where people really need to start at. We're on the same page with all those things. I think at that point when a player can prove to a company that they have what it takes to like be beneficial, then they can start talking about what they get back, whether it's discs, whether it's reference codes to help make money um, so they can you know, get a kickback when they help sell products. We see that a lot in the disc golf community. Um, I know we really want to take care of the players in our roster. That's why resistance has kept the team so small and not just taking the approach of let's sign 45 people and let them go out and be social media warriors for us. Um, We want to make sure that our players can get all our new releases, that they can get discs when they need them, that they can get apparel and that kind of stuff. So I know that's the approach that we've taken. And then let's real quickly touch on major disc manufacturers because I hear so many young kids be like, my dreams to sign with Innova or my dreams to sign with Discraft and I really want to be on their team. Well, the truth is now it's kind of the top level or 
someone that's really young and has shown a ton of promise at a, at an early age that a company can be like, Hey, we'll invest in you because you're going to be worth it down the road. At what point do you feel like a player should be loyal and kind of brand specific to really focusing in on one company's equipment that they want to throw? I think, for the most part, and again, a lot of there's a lot of fans out there that are just like, you know, I only throw Discraft. Like, I love Discraft discs. Paul McBeth is on Discraft, so I only throw Discraft. Or, you know, Discmania till I die. This is the only thing I want to throw. And I think if you are a player that wants to be a professional-level player, wants to be sponsored by a manufacturer and get that kind of support, that you need to put the best tools in your bag to be successful until you're ready to take that step to have a manufacturer sponsor. So, you know, maybe you do, you, maybe you sacrifice, you know, one or two strokes on the course because you're bagging a brand specific bag, but it's not the worst thing. If you're trying to understand, all right, if I am going to be sponsored by this company, this is what I'm, the tools I am going to have to work with. And this is what I'm going to have to play my game with. Um, but for the most part, if you are an aspiring professional player that wants that, Again, when we talk about different levels of sponsorship, a lot of manufacturer sponsorships these days are coming with financial compensation and, you know, cash money support. You got people want to make this their full time job and manufacturers are definitely leading the way and helping people do that. You got to be at the top level. You have to win. Like that is the idea of being a professional player is winning. Um, so. If you need to, you know, maybe throw a slightly mixed bag, you know, you love Discraft, you want to be sponsored by them, but you think, oh, I really need to have this Discmania disc in my lineup, or I really need to have this Trilogy disc in my bag, throw that disc. You know, go out there, perform at your best top level, and when that manufacturer's ready to commit to you, and you're ready to do that for them, you know, then you get that bag together. And I think that's a... Again, something that a lot of players, you know, don't always want to hear. They think they need to be brand loyal and just, you know, play at your best level. Yeah, I think that's more important than being brand loyal. It doesn't hurt to if you're right on that cut line from like getting a team spot or not getting a team spot. Let's say you're a FPO player that's at 920 rated and you're going to play 20 events this year. Like, yeah, maybe being a little more focused on like, hey, I really want to sign with Discraft. Right now, I'm going to show them that I can go out and compete with almost all their plastic. Or you're an MPO player, um, like a situation that maybe a Chris Nelson was in last year where you're 1020 to 1025 and you're just really trying to find where you fit in. He was still throwing a mixed bag um, up until Innova signed him in November or December for the 2022 season. He was doing it right. I just There's so many good discs out there made by so many companies until you are really ready to sign on that dotted line and you're going to get enough compensation to make it worth it from the company, then, you know, throw what works, follow your favorite players, try out their discs and that kind of stuff, and definitely support the companies that you feel like you're doing it the right way. But at the same time, if you really need that, if you're throwing all this crap, but you really need that justice or something in your bag, throw it until you're getting paid or until you're getting um, supported by a company. Don't hesitate to kind of throw a mixed bag. I've been in a situation in the last few years where I have been incredibly lucky to be supported by companies that 
I have nothing but great things to say about them and their equipment. Obviously, Innova kind of led the charge for a long time, and I was on their roster for five years. And then in the last few years, Discraft has put everything that they have into making sure that players have the best equipment possible in their hands. And now I'm on the beneficiary side of that. Just, I mean, I went from a great lineup of discs to another incredibly great lineup of discs, and there was no step back in like my comfort level on the course. But it takes a little bit of time to get used to everything. I just, yeah, I mean, unless you're going to get the support from a company, I don't think there's any of them that would tell you like, oh, we're never going to sign you because you had two trilogy discs in your bag and you really want to be part of Team Discmania. Or we're not going to sign you because you had um, one in of a disc in your bag, but you wanted to be part of Team, Di- Team Discraft. Basically, when you get signed, or if you get signed by one of the major companies, then you can adjust what you're throwing and pick up on um, anything that you need to be successful. But I would say, like, let's be realistic. If you are looking for a major manu- major manufacturer sponsor at this point, they're not really giving them out to AM players anymore. It just isn't the way it works because there's so much talent and so much personality at the top level. The companies are choosing to invest in their professional level players. So if you're like a 970 guy, just because you start playing MPO, it's not the time to expect someone to just be like, okay, here's 50 discs for the year and you can be part of our team and you can work your way up. Like you better be pushing that. Or even the 970 guy that is sitting there like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to win AM Worlds this year. Like I'm going to win US AMs. I want to win. I'm going to win 30 AM tournaments this year. And like, that's going to be my ticket, my key in. It's not the case. Like, Continue on your topic, but I want to talk. I'm going to eventually get to the three like things that are like the three types of players that I think stand out the most. But no, I'm I just want to jump in on that. Yeah. You want me to shoot them? All right. Yeah. Let's so go. I think when and I get this is from my experience uh, for people who don't know, I used to work for Discmania. It was I had like an unofficial like assistant team manager role. I did a lot of stuff with their team with Avery Jenkins, who is their team manager. Um, and also at Discraft with uh, Bob Julio, the team manager. I get to see a lot of the intricacies and the ins and outs of, you know, looking at players and looking at people that we want to sponsor. Um, And I think there's three like things that keep popping up or like three types of players that keep popping up of this is who we want to pick up or this is who what free agent we're chasing. And the first one, and it's probably the most obvious one, are tour pros, people who are out there on the disc golf pro tour. There are those 10, 20 plus ish rated players, 10, 10 to 10, 20 plus rated players. They're out there competing. They're cashing. They're playing at that top level. You know, they're touring disc golfers. They're the, basically the best of the best. They're the less than 1% of our sport. Like you got to think of it that way as well. These touring disc golfers are less than 1% of the sport entirely. And that's just PDGA members. Next on the list is regionally dominant players. Scott's a great example of that kind of player. When Discraft was looking at Scott, they were like, holy cow, this guy is playing, you know, 25 events a season, like 25 to 30 events a season. He's winning 20 to like 25 of those. There is, you know, basically no one who's been beating Scott in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, he's going to be racking up wins for the team it's great to see it looks great on paper and then he's also just pushing the product in the local community and that's something that these major manufacturers are looking for 
And then third on that list are young up and coming prospects. People who are like under the age of 18 that are, you know, pushing that thousand rated mark, looking to make that jump from, you know, some of the best juniors or amateurs in the country or world to that tour pro level. Like your Gannon Burr, Cole Radolin, Ty Love. Um, you know, I can list off more and more, but companies are also loving those young prospect players. Um, and I think those three are the easiest uh, scoops for manufacturer sponsors on the national level. There are companies that sponsor players as like an ambassador kind of role. You know, Discraft has an underground team. Prodigy has a street team. Innova has a you know massive ambassador team. Um, but those draw back to, um, you know, active in your local tournament scene, your local club, social media, all of those things. But those players are like they're not companies aren't as much going out and recruiting or trying to sign those players. Those players are more approaching companies to get that sponsorship. But if you're looking to stand out and get that, you know, major manufacturer sponsorship, something on a national level, you need to stand out on the course in some kind of way. And that's like, in summary, my biggest thing or tip for players out there is you need to stand out, whether it is local or national. You need to find a way to differentiate yourself from everybody else. Yep. We're on the same page. I, I think those are the three keys. I also think that when a player gets ready to be sponsored and is offered maybe a position on like an ambassador team or a street team or something, they need to look in the mirror and say, what am I getting? How is this beneficial to me? What can I do for the company, obviously, to make sure that I'm in a position to move up? Because if the first year that you sign with a underground team or a street team or whatever and you're getting 10 discs but then you have to throw a brand specific bag and maybe you have to change your game a little bit for it you got to look in the mirror and say is it worth it is am i someone that they're going to invest in long term is there a position for me to move up like let's say i sign on the prodigy street team can i move up like am i a player that's really got the potential to move up or am i just going to get 10 discs and two t-shirts for the year and then have to throw all their stuff and just be part of this giant marketing um platform that they're doing just to say i'm part of a team it needs to be beneficial for the company and for the player and i'll kind of leave it at that but as a player work really hard get yourself in position performance wise to be able to go to someone and say hey look i'm worth investing in and then also make sure your social media game is good and then when that time comes if you do get an offer to join a team don't just say yes without reading over it and making sure that it's actually going to be beneficial to you so um let's real quickly jump into one more short topic um the season has started i there wasn't much going on in the northwest um this weekend and we'll usually touch on one regional type topic but because it's been kind of a slow couple weeks up here um before we kind of get into more oregon series events and everything let's go with one tip for players to immediately improve their scoring on the course and we can talk about during a tournament round or even a rec round um, but what's one thing that Jeff Corns does that would help other players to score better on the course? Well, or that Jeff see, the thing is, you said, the, yeah, we'll go with that because this is not something that Jeff Corns always does. But I would say the biggest tip I can give people to help you improve your game is upshots, upshots, upshots. I think that the upshot is the 
most crucial shot uh, in disc golf. I know a lot of uh, players, like I talked about this one time on like a thing with Ezra where he said, I think the most important thing is the tee shot. Um, you know, getting clean off the tee is the most important thing. And so, well, sometimes you don't get clean off the tee. What happens when you don't? You have to throw an upshot. And at first, I like didn't want to hear this when I started trying to push myself to a better tournament player level. Um, I was like, ah, eh, like working on my upshots is boring. Like that's lame. Like I don't want to go out to a field and you know put my bag out there somewhere and try to throw approaches to my bag and try all the different lines, angles, like all that kind of stuff. It just doesn't sound fun. But the most crucial thing I think in disc golf when it comes to playing and uh, shaving strokes off your score is the upshot. You have to get up and down. You have to get pars. And we talk about this a lot at the professional level is scoring is critical. You have to score to play at the professional level and bogeys hurt. You can't take bogeys. Um, and how do you prevent those? You throw good upshots. You get up and down. And uh, I want to draw this back to a point that a Frisbee legend, Dan Stork Roddick, he's PDGA number three, told me. He said, this game is a game about circles. You have a circle around the basket that you know that you can get the disc into the basket from. And you have to put yourself into that circle. Okay. Where do you need to be to get the disc into that circle? You know, whether it's off the tee, like you might need to say, oh, I'm playing a 500 foot par four. I got to put myself at least 200 feet down the fairway so that I can throw a 300-foot shot into that green, and I need to be able to accurately put it within 20 feet because I suck at putting. I'm not going to make something outside of 20 feet. i got to put it within there to get the birdie. He broke it down very simply into a way that I love, and I still kind of try to talk about it in clinics and stuff, is everything is about these circles, and it's about putting your disc in one of those circles to put yourself in the next circle to eventually put yourself in the basket. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Uh, you, we saw that this weekend, for sure. One of the reasons that I finished top 10 is this weekend, my upshots were really good. My second shot's on par fours, and that's not trying to do a humble brag or anything. I'm just saying, literally, like, upshots and putting were crucial for me to take top 10 this weekend because I don't throw the disc as far as the guys that I was playing with, which is crazy because if you play with me in the Northwest, you're like, well, you crush the disc. Well, yes, Difference between tour distance and elite distance, like we talked about. I think, for me, the quickest way to improve strokes in a course is your mental game. And it's realizing what you can do and not trying to do too much. Because you see so many players that go out and want to try to birdie every single hole or make every single putt or whatever. I think being realistic with yourself when you're playing a tournament round, let's say you are in the middle of the MA1 field and you're just really trying to push to get better. Some of the biggest differences I see between an MA1 player and a good MPO player is decision making. And it's just the mental game of, hey, I don't have to make this 45 foot death putt unless it's the last couple holes and it's coming down to like, you know, trying to win a tournament. Maybe there's a cliff behind the basket. It's a little breezy. How do you analyze like, okay. I've got this putt. It's 45 feet. If I miss it, I'm rolling down a hill more than likely. I have a maybe 40% chance to make this putt. But I have an 80% chance that if I miss the putt, I'm going to take a bogey. 
Like at what point is it worth just putting it in the ground and moving on? I just think there's mental decisions um, as you play more, as you learn the game, especially someone that's been involved in golf and been involved in other sports for a long time. We don't talk much about the mental side of disc golf, but I think it's a big advantage for certain players and for players that have been around a long time. Whether you're playing MA2, MA1, FPO, FA1, MPO, it doesn't really matter. The mental part of the game and knowing what your limitations are and knowing when you should be aggressive and when you shouldn't be aggressive, doing what you can to put yourself in the best position to shoot your best score. Just because you birdie hole one, two, and three doesn't mean you need to go for everything for the rest of the round. Just because you bogey hole one, two, and three doesn't mean the round's over and you can't claw your way back into it. I think going into each round that you play where you're trying to keep score with a clear mind, you stay calm, you stay in it, and you realize like, hey, I may have thrown a bad shot there or I may have thrown a good shot there, but what I just did has no impact at all on the shot that's upcoming. So when you step up to that one, make the decision that you feel is best for your scorecard. If that's being aggressive, being be aggressive. But if it's a situation where it's a little unrealistic for you to pull a shot off, don't be afraid to throw a layup or don't be afraid to pitch it back out to the middle so you can make sure you take that par. You make sure you take that bogey and not take a bigger number. I think for me, one way without worrying about any physical stuff to get better right away is to look in the mirror and realize what you're good at, play to your strengths and make sure that if you put yourself in situations that aren't great, that you make the best decision for your scorecard at the end, because there's nothing worse than taking double bogeys or triple bogeys that ruins around faster than anything. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, you know, you like to casually play basketball and you don't go out on the basketball court and you don't just, pull up every single three from 37 feet because you know that you're not Steph Curry. If you're an aspiring MA1 player or even pro player coming up, you have to ask yourself, am I Paul Macbeth? No, I'm not. I don't need to make the hero play. I'm not, you know, 450 feet out of position and I need to get up and down and still save my birdie because that's what I have to do to compete. No, you're playing with another, if you're an MA1 player, you're playing with maybe another guy that's like 960 rated. He's not going to be you know, throw in the next 450 foot shot to right underneath the basket on every single hole. So I like what you said there. Keep yourself in check, know your strengths and not put yourself in a game that you don't play. Yeah. Uh, you have any final thoughts before we jump out of here for, uh, for two weeks and then rejoin everyone right after Waco. Uh, I think we basically covered everything that I wanted to chat about today. Hopefully there's a lot of beneficial information that, you know, helps people with their game, with their aspiring tournament life or disc golf career. And they left with something valuable to their, to their career today. Yeah, hopefully. Um, big thank you, Jeff and, um, resistance and discraft and grip and everything that you're doing for me um, we had a great week in vegas got to go out to some pretty cool places to eat got to have some fun with the buddies and get to see everyone so i know it was a really good week for me so thank you for helping with that um and you know go check out the resistance website we just dropped a bunch of new ledstone wave two stuff which i got back in town last night helped riley pack up some stuff because she had a ton of orders to come in poor thing was working her butt off by herself um as we were out of town having fun um but yeah check out the site we got some really cool stuff on there right now some new dga stuff um like i said the ledstone wave two stuff that dropped um and then as always 
go pick up one of my buzz os's that are that are listed on the site right now but thank you guys for listening um this has been the resistance discs podcast our second episode we will be back with you in two weeks and we will catch you guys then see you guys later <laughs>